Welcome to Church's Changing Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Estock, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Rebecca Anderson. She is one of the pastors at Gilead Chicago, where they tell true stories, throw great parties, and worship beautifully. Gilead is actually supported by two denominations, the Chicago Metropolitan Association of the UCC and the Disciples of Christ. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks so much for inviting me. I I think I want to start with this tagline, telling true stories, throwing great parties, and worshiping beautifully. It sounds to me like those are core values. And I'm just wondering how you and Vince, your co-pastor, came about creating Gilead Chicago and, and framing it in that way. Right. I mean, depending how far back you want to go, right? So we were we were in grad school together, but got close afterward as part of a clergy covenant group that just sort of emerged, kind of an organic thing where we still travel once a year with, with friends. And in that group, we discovered a lot of shared affinities and commitments and styles, and we both think the other one's hilarious, and we both have a lot <laughs> of things in common. We're both playwrights. We're both PKs. And so Vince was pastoring down in Florida, a big UCC church, and I was up here working in the suburbs north of Chicago. And the disciples had started to prepare me, equip me to plant church. I had always had interest in new stuff. I'm kind of a DIY. I had done comedy in my 20s. I'd done theater for a whole bunch of my life, kind of, and the kind of theater where it's like, oh, I wonder what we could do in here. Could we make this happen? Which was part of my shared affinity with Vince. So one summer, 2014, I pitched, you know, what would it look like if we started a church together? Let's let's talk about it and see where it goes. I and mean, it doesn't go anywhere. Let's stop talking about it. And over the next, I don't know, I can't even remember the timeline anymore, but, but we decided that we were in fact going to try it. So I guess it was a half year because by 2015, I ended up in the Disciples Academy. I should remember the name <laughs> Hope Academy. <laughs> Gosh, it's bad, bad marketing. It was a, it was a great thing that I'm glad I went to. But we did a lot of work in that. And I was solo because Vince was in the hospital waiting for his kid to be born. And we did a lot of work around like vision, mission, and branding. And I, I really resist a lot of what feels like marketing language and, and think about think about identity and how we're living into the vision and how we're living into our commitments and all that. And it was really through that work, like in a hotel conference room mm. that constantly texting with Vince because he was in the hospital with nothing to do. So this, this kind of long distance collaboration and what we ended up with was a, a list of adjectives and a list of nouns that sometimes I'll describe as like, if you look at them, they look like a baby picture of our church. You know, you can be like, <laughs> oh, I see, I see this, you know, trait that that somehow, by the grace of God, then was like born out. Like, I just, I felt guilty because I was like, we just kind of made it up, you know, like, what what will your church be like? And I was like, I don't know, this list <laughs> of adjectives, you know, but it, it does, it, it has kind of been born out. So at that point, we came up with three three sort of in that vision, mission, values rubric, I can't remember where they're supposed to fit. Say their values, I don't know. Their practices. And mm-hmm. the practices were that we would make beautiful creative worship together. And there was scriptural foundation and I think the message version of the Romans, you know, your whole walking around lives, that they're a living sacrifice for God. So we're gonna make beautiful creative worship with all of who we are. We're gonna grow and share good food. That was our second value. We thought we were gonna be urban gardeners and it turned out we were very, very bad at it. 
<laughs> and then our third value, practice, whatever, was tell true stories that save lives. Mm. And that was the one that we would tell strangers, like at the gym or at a bar or at some party or whatever. People would like tear up, like non-religious people would tear up. And at that point, that was sort of the, that was the pitch. And that storytelling piece was the one that was sticky for people. But Mm -hmm. we didn't know until we did our first, until we did our first crowdfunding campaign, which was fall of 2016, we made our little you know, iMovie video with all the Ken Burns effects and everything, (laughs) that we didn't know that we were a storytelling church. You know, we thought we had, like, this is just sort of who we are. And to me, in many ways, it just sounds like church, you know. But we made this little video and we had started to gather some people. And the storytelling rooms in Chicago were really instructive to me in, in who we wanted to be church for and with and and why. Because these rooms are at that point especially, were like packed out with the demographic that the progressive church beats its chest over. Mm-hmm. 20, 30, 40-somethings. Anyway, so we arrived at them just through a series of like conference room exercises, and then they were borne out in, in practice and fleshed out by how we started living into them. We had this clarity around, oh, we're a storytelling church. That's the main, that's the thing. We realized we were bad gardeners after we sunk like $16,000 into growing 50 pounds of food. So we scrapped <laughs> that. <laughs> we scrapped that. And, but our, our verse for that one had always been the Isaiah that God will prepare on this mountain a feast for all people. And there's like a lot about wine and good food and nothing about hauling mulch. So we were like, aha. <laughs> so we, we, did, we did a study about loneliness and how do you invite people into community? And we started throwing parties. So that's the very fulsome answer to your question. Okay, so you have this, you, you followed this deep passion that, that that just unfolded about, you know, telling true stories that change people's lives. So how is that played out in Gilead? How, how does that work? Yeah, they don't just change lives, they save lives. <laughs> save lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, it seemed like a bit much to claim at first. The way it plays out, what it looks like is that in each service or each gathering, Usually, we're kind of small right now, but usually two people tell a true first-person story from their own life that they've built and crafted around the same theme, either as the worship series or more specifically that the preacher is taking on that night. Liturgically, they happen right out of the welcome. And after each story, this happened, we only had one church service where this didn't happen, our first one. After each story, one of the usually pastor, one of the people on the mic says, this is the word of God for the people of God. And everyone says, thanks be to God. We don't do those in place of scripture, but that's how that's how we do it. That's how we live into it. And we have, and the underlying theology around that is that if, if we think God is still at work in the world, that one of the ways that happens is in and through our lives, whether people name God or not. So yeah, so that's how it, that's how it, shows up in the in the services. And then every other gathering we do ever, there's some aspect of storytelling. So I'm just curious about that piece. Is there, do you work with the storytellers? Do you, do you, do you try to help them kind of do the beginning, middle, end, kind of curate the story? Or do you have such great storytellers that it's just spur of the moment? I mean, how does this happen? It's definitely not spur of the moment. That gives me sort of palpitations. That's why I said crafted, crafted. So when we were first starting, I would say for probably the maybe as long as the first year, I put a lot of time and labor into 
into working with tellers and inviting tellers from beyond our congregation because we mm-hmm. were it's kind of amorphous like who are we who even is this congregation but there are a lot of connected to that scene here in Chicago and so I'd have a lot of those folks in to to tell but at that point, when we were still kind of building our culture, like, who are we? How do we do this thing? I did a lot of coaching, I think, is slightly too strong. But I did quite a bit of serious editing that I can hardly remember that I did all that on, like, a Saturday night of someone else's work. But the way I talk about it now is we offer – we have an almost monthly story circle where somebody – there are a few sort of master storytellers in the congregation. A lot of people are very good storytellers. And then there are some people who it's connected to their work or they have a long practice of storytelling or whatever. One of those people leads a monthly story circle where people can kind of work on the craft in general or can work toward developing a story for a specific upcoming theme. But there was – One of the people who ran that story circle for a while, she had a vision that Gilead would be a place that would become known in Chicago as a place where you could learn storytelling, whether or not you were part of the congregation. Oh, beautiful. And I think for a while that was was true. I mean, the pandemic changed everything for everyone. Mm But we did have that pull for a while. She she really made that vision happen. So we we offer training, we offer workshops. But also, I think like any other congregation living into any part of its own liturgy, we kind of just know how it's done. And like any other church, there are times when it goes off the rails, but everyone knows it's off the rails. You know, like generally we pray prayers to the people kind of on the short side, but so-and-so always goes on really long and that's not really how we do, but that's who she is and it's fine, you know, and that's true at like every church in the world, whatever the thing is, you know. So I really appreciate that sense of the fullness of the claiming of the, 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 the telling of the story and how that's supported through the story circle. So tell me, okay, you begin with the story as part of the liturgy, and then, and then what else happens during that worship experience? It's funny because in some ways it's very churchy. Sometimes people will reach out to us and say, like, I'm thinking of doing something like that here. It doesn't happen that much anymore, but we're thinking of doing something like that here. Will you send us a bulletin? And I'm like, sure, but it's progressive (laughs) Christian worship. Like, you can – you don't need me. We start with a poem. We start with a song. There's a welcome. In addition to the stories that a couple of individuals tell at some length, usually, God willing, like five minutes, but in addition to those stories, as part of the welcome, we read what we call prompts. It's an idea that we ripped off from the moth, where I think they also call them prompts. It's just a half sentence. It always ends, almost always ends with the word when, because that drives people to moments rather than ideas. And that little prompt is designed, even though the even though what's on the paper is very, it's often very straightforward. The best meal I ever had was when I wanted more when I did a 180 when. We've put a lot of thought into what kinds of moments will that take someone to. People fill those in anonymously when they show up to worship, and we end up with a little handful of them, and we read those as part of the welcome. Some time ago, our disciples' regional minister said, they're your call to worship. And I thought, I think that's probably actually right. But so we get these little mini stories, and you have a sense of who's in the room, and Mm. there's this, you know, kind of cloud of witnesses energy. And curiosity, too. Like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I want to meet whoever said that. Yeah. There's a story there. Reliably. Reliably. People say, yeah, it's great. It's, you know... And, and there also are themes that emerge where 
yeah, it's too early in our conversation for me to quote these stories to you, but they're often very outrageous things. And people will share quite high stakes things as well. I think not in a way, I've never experienced it as like dangerous. It's just very vulnerable, you know? So someone will share something quite vulnerable and you'll know that someone in this room who's sitting here right now has had this experience. Mm, I just want to sit with that for a second because that just takes me to a place of depth really fast. And this sense of building a we space, like number one, there's somebody that I could connect to, or there's somebody that has a story that's just so opposite my life experience, but yet we're here together. And it kind of uh, brings you to holy ground really fast. I mean, I think that one of, for me, for my money, one of the ways that these stories work, I think one of the fundamental ways they work that it's not fancy, it's not nuanced, but that they're explicit in the way they proclaim you're not alone. Someone can know that intellectually, but Mm -hmm. it's quite different to hear in detail that someone else has had this experience. And they can, they can share it and be anonymous at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So they can kind of test it out. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Mm. We have stories. We sing again. We pray prayers to the people. We have announcements, take an offering. Nobody puts anything in the bucket. We stopped passing a bucket around well before the pandemic because we were like, (laughs) this $7 of cash is not worth it. fine. It's fine, you guys. We're good. And then we have a sermon. And the the scripture is embedded in the sermon. We don't read the scripture separately in advance of the preaching. It's read, shared, told in, in the context of the sermon. We pass the peace and we have communion. And there's a closing song and a benediction. I think the other thing, in addition to the stories that is really noticeable, because all that sounds exactly like church, is that we sing only pop music and we choose the pop music, our music director chooses the music the way that you choose any worship music, which is like what gets at this theme, either in feeling or lyrics or what gets at this theme from one angle or the other. And sometimes it's a real stretch because we're also going for singability. But that's the, we found out pretty early on, to our surprise, that's what the congregation sings sort of open, open-heartedly, wholeheartedly. We, I think we thought we were going to be like a, Vince has written about this, but we thought we were going to be like a banjo, four-part harmony, Sufjan kind of church, and it is not that kind of party, like, at all. <laughs> it's much more like Carly Rae Jepsen. You know, I'm like, I'm sorry I'm so old and singing Carly Rae Jepsen, everyone. It's very upsetting, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> so what kind of instrumentation do you do you bring to the party? A piano and an uh, incredible pianist and an incredible drummer. And most most weeks, that's it. And then sometimes we'll have a guest bassist or, you know, we sometimes we do about one music series a year where we'll do, we'll have like a guest in, instrumentalist and we'll do all songs that like, that they just don't work unless you have a sax solo. I think sax solos are horrible, but uh, <laughs> but you get like, so so we do a thing, you know, that, that features that instrumentation or whatever. So, so, and how often do you guys gather? We gather every week, which feels like a little bit too much right now. We gather every week except for holidays. We cancel church on basically every holiday weekend. We take a summer break that is, Pride is the last Sunday in June in Chicago. So we take off. We don't have church that night or the next because it's like it runs into Fourth of July weekend. We cancel church for events that people say they don't care about, but does mean they won't come to church. So it is like the least sportsy church in the United States. But 
we should not have church on Super Bowl Sunday ever. It's a like, and I'm saying this out loud for me more than the podcast because I'm like, don't have church on Super Bowl Sunday. No one comes. You know, awards shows. So we end up having church, maybe, maybe like forty four times a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you, you and Vince co-pastor a traditional church as well. Yeah. So we we split one full-time job at Gilead, and we share another job at Bethany United Church of Christ here in Chicago, which is a historic neighborhood church. It started out as like a German immigrant church. It's 127, 128. And that was more of a, I don't need to make any caveats. That was a revitalization project. It was quite small when we got there, although there was a lot that gave us genuine kind of hope for the possibility that it would that it would grow again and it really has and it's been a it's people ask you know sort of how different are the congregations and I think there's a little bit of code switching that happens on a Sunday afternoon Bethany meets on Sunday mornings Gilead meets on Sunday evenings at five it's a little bit of code switching but it's it's mostly a big thing that undergirds our sense of congregational ministry at all, initially it was we talked about it in terms of new church, but it's really congregational ministry writ large, is that congregations are each like a translation of the gospel, you know, in an Acts 2 sense, and that new church is often in a position, it's always in a position to do a new translation, whether it does or not, to do a specific translation. So I think the main thing that's different between these churches is just I think it's too slight to say it's stylistic, but they are different expressions of, they're different expressions of church, you know, and I got drawn off by talking about Acts 2 and don't remember where I was going. Yeah, well, let me let me follow up with, is there a different demographic in each church? Tell us a little bit about that. So Gilead came to call itself a queer storytelling bar church which is something we say a lot more often now than our three core practices. That cuts through noise in a bar, I'll tell you that much. So it's a queer storytelling bar church. We don't have a dedicated space. We we rent from whoever will let us and ideally bars. Therefore, it made sense when somebody recently asked me, is Gilead your queer church and Bethany is your straight church? And I was like, no, no, no. Gilead's like the queer church and Bethany is like the gay church with like old gay elders, it's like progressives <laughs> from way back. So it's a slight, it is a different demographic. Gilead has far more like quite young people in their, in their 20s, maybe not quite young, but like mid, late 20s up through probably, you know, late 40s, something like that with people on either ends of that bell curve. Bethany tends to be people who are a little, a little bit more established. Like we definitely have single apartment dwelling people there like me, but the the whole bell curve is shifted like a little bit older. So it's more like 30s to our 90-year-old person died in the fall, but the curve is older. And there are people, there there are cultural demographics that are different too. I think Gilead comprises more people who are suspicious of institutions, of any institution, mm-hmm. which makes it hard to build an institution. And I think Bethany is just has more folks who have like done a lot of good work in the world through institutions, you know, museums, other churches, theaters, you know. So I think those are the two big things that you would sense that there's this kind of age and then there's kind of almost like life life stage in a way that's disconnected from age. Mm-hmm. So is there in the Gilead Chicago church, 
Is it difficult to get volunteers and to move people into some set structure that's going to help undergird what you're trying to do? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Next? Yes. Ah! Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, and I, and I think, so we were, whatever, depends who's counting, but say we're three years old going into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And like fall of 2019, we were like, all right, we've got to get some structures into place. Our mm-hmm. church coach is Bruce Reyes Chow. We're like, we're going to work with Bruce and our leadership team, and we're going to figure out what the heck we think we're even doing, what all y'all think we're doing as your pastors, what needs doing in this church. If you're game for that, if we want to bring up other people into this leadership team, let's get into it. And January, February of 2020, we ran this big social media campaign that grew the church by, you know, I can never percentages right. We went from 40 to 60. And we were younger, queerer, more racially, ethnically diverse. And it was like, let's do this. We've got people. We've got people queued up. We've got people, you know, people can roll off. New people can come in. And then the pandemic. Mm. And our leadership structures, our structures were not, like, we were we were at that place. We were, we were probably beyond it, but we were at that place where it's like, this church can't just run through the founding pastors. Like, we're tired. There are too many people. That's not yeah. the way church works. That's not healthy. We were ready to make that shift. We needed to make that shift. Mm-hmm. And then here came the pandemic and we were like, oh my God. And just like hunker down everybody, take care of each other, drop off donuts at each other's house, Zoom church, <laughs> figure it out. Like, And then we pick our heads up two years later and we've got like leadership catastrophe last year. And and we just, we were not in a place to, we, we didn't do that work. And we, people said to each other, like, well, we needed systems in place. And I was like, yeah, baby, you can look at the meeting notes from 2019. We tried. Mm-hmm. We, we really, we ate with the old. So, so yes. And I think in the, so in terms of like the, I was just saying this to a colleague this morning, that, that Bethany, part of the revitalization of Bethany is that it has grown into one of my like favorite metaphors for healthy church, which is that the congregation is a load-bearing structure. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thanks be to God. Yes. And Gilead is like a little bit of like a, you know, blanket fort right now. You know, it's like, it's like beautiful and it's like twinkle lights and you can like have a friend and have cookies, but just like... (laughs) Like we we thought we were moving out of the blanket fort phase like three years ago, and we're like these blanket. It's just you could make it walk on all fours. It's a it is the first time I have said that metaphor. It's a little bit unflattering to Gilead, but that's what happened, man. You know that's that's what happened. Yeah, and that's the reality. I mean, oh my gosh, for for all people that were just getting you know getting some some groundedness and a sense of who they were as a church and then boom i mean it just the rug was pulled away yeah and and so it's like ugh the energy it takes to kind of build back from where you had hopes that you would be right now that's right yeah and we're in a different place because of course we are in a different place but in a place like an established congregation you have both the the struggle and the gifts of like there's some things in place even if it's just like chairs i mean we spend so much time schlepping things yeah time and energy and there's some things in place there's some people in place there's some structures some of them are ossified not that good but the new church it's it's yeah we're we're i feel like we've been in this long-legged cult phase for like so long mm. Well, just to follow up 
with that. I, I know it's a conundrum and it's a conundrum for many people. I mean, even folks that are serving in, you know, traditional churches where the pandemic has just ripped out the floor really of, of the structure. Mm-hmm. What are you learning about building team? What, what is working? What doesn't work? I mean, you can answer that question however you want. You know, it's easy to look back and be like, I wish I had done X, Y, or Z at such and such point. We could have avoided this other stuff. I, I don't, I, it's not really worth it. It's a phase of my ministry that I'm mm-hmm. in because it's one of the things I struggle the most with. You know, I think what has worked, I feel it's, you know, I've got nothing. I don't feel like I have anything meaningful to say on it because it's like, well, it's the thing that everybody wants. We found some people who are just mm-hmm. extremely gifted people who work basically autonomously, make sure things happen. They're creative and, you know, our music director, he gets the project, he gets the, you know, the theme, he runs with it, he makes great music happen. He manages our drummer who's like amazing, but like a total space cadet. Great. It's all working out. You know, someone someone like that, uh, what a great team member. And now he's a staff member, so I know that's not quite what you're talking about. One thing that we one thing that we learned is that we held on to the kind of launch team model, I would say too long because it, at least in our setting, launch team was like, are you excited about this thing? Great. It doesn't really matter what your skill set is. We just care that you're excited. That's perfect. Your excitement is a skill set that we need. That's great. And we kept working with those people who cared about this place and had a vision about this place beyond the point where maybe for some of them it made sense because they were on to some other important part of their life and maybe they had less time for us or maybe they just didn't, the kind of leadership that we needed wasn't the kind of leadership that they wanted or Mm -hmm. was part of their skill set. All of them, like really incredible people, but but we just kind of floated along, you know, for I think a little bit longer than we than we should have. And we could have earlier done done the work of like, okay, what actually needs to to happen here? I don't know. I don't know how differently it all would have gone, but I it's just a big it's a big gap for me and what we what I, I won't talk for Vince, what I know how to do. Mm-hmm is sort of leadership development. It's particularly perplexing when at a place like Bethany, which again, it might have to do with the difference between people being anti-institutionalists and sort of familiar with working in institutions and people who basically believe in the power of institutions Mm -hmm. to make change, that like leadership development at Bethany is just like giving people the keys you know, people who are like, ooh, is there something like, because Bethany has a building and it has a history and it has systems, but mm-hmm. it absolutely attracts people who are kind of scrappy DIY people, which is to say not everything is in place there. You know, I sort of joke, like if you're looking for some church that has a Sunday school class for every grade level and like the basement never smells weird, we're not the church for you. That's not Bethany. It's mm-hmm. It's got more more work that that's needed than that. And it attracts the kind of people who come in and are like, ooh, the basement smells weird. Like, I wonder what we could do here. <laughs> so it has that same kind of, it has a certain kind of startup energy and people are just looking to like, like put me in. And I wonder, as of this moment, saying it that way, I wonder what would what would invite people to bring that part of their energy to Gilead? Because it's not that there are people there who don't have that like, ooh, I wonder what I could make happen. I don't know, that's that's where I am on building a team and inviting people or, you know, bringing people up into leadership. Yeah, so to be continued. Yeah. 
big time. I'm glad that you sh- you're sharing your struggle because I think a lot of times people looking from the outside in are like, oh my gosh, how, how have they done that? They, they have something really beautiful going on. They must have some great teams in place and some great structure. And it's like, well, maybe maybe we're a little bit more fragile than than you think we are right now. I think that's definitely true. I'll I'll say something maybe we can bleep out, but we had a bunch of like promising young clergy from the UCC visit. They came to church in November. And they're part of like the next generation leadership initiative. They're all incredibly gifted working pastors. They're grown. Mm-hmm. But as the Benedict, I mean, that service was unhinged. We were in a bar where we never meet. I, it got disrupted by a guy who threatened a bunch of the pastors with violence. He, no kidding, had a shillelagh, which I had to like look up the spelling of. But I was, I was like, it, it was, it was unhinged. And it was the night that all of these clergy were there, and and as the benediction, I said, so this is it. This is our church. If someone has blown smoke up your ass about us. This is it. Now you've seen it. This is like, ooh, Gilead, Chicago. Like, welcome to it. It's a disaster. Like, you know, go in peace. Like, don't, you know, it's because it was unusual, but it wasn't like that unusual, you know? Yeah, yeah. I will say, both because I feel guilty and because it's true, that there are people in leadership right now who are making the thing happen at Gilead. And I will say that a very important piece of learning for me that I claimed was already part of my motto is not saying no on behalf of people. Mm, like, well, I don't want to ask yes. Beth to do that. She's already doing the podcast. I right. don't want to. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's real because I don't want to ask the same person to do everything. It also closes out other people. But one of the most important leaders in that congregation right now is somebody who, like when we when we did reform the leadership team last year, we didn't ask him because we were like, well, he's already doing so much. And he was like, why wouldn't you, like, like I'm also working on this church super hard. Shouldn't I be in leadership? He didn't exactly say that, but he could have because he was right. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had the occasion since to, like, on multiple occasions, be like, I don't know what we were thinking. Like, thank goodness for your honesty and that conversation and that you came into leadership. So I think I, it was true that I already said, I don't say no on people's behalf a lot, but it, it must've been in maybe smaller scale. I, I hadn't, I hadn't scaled up the sense in which that mm-hmm. ought to be the case maybe. Well, that's some, that's some good wisdom. Thank you for sharing that. What excites you about the future? When I ask this question, I, I really want it, you know, you, you have one foot in the inherited church one foot in this experimental church. And now we have the big overarching, well, church and the inherited church is disintegrating as we know it. And yeah, what excites you about the next 10, 20 years? I think I've been thinking for the church, I've been thinking of the church for a while now as kind of like a post-apocalyptic outpost. And I'm in a position of privilege. My my livelihood will not go away if I don't have a church job. I mean, it basically, it would right now, but not, not writ large. Um, so I'm in a position of privilege, and I'm, you know, just young enough that I can do something else or whatever. But, but one of the things that excites me is that the people who are still doing church need it desperately. It's like a certain kind of this is a dirty word, but I don't mean it that way, survivalist, you know, it's people who are like, you're here. You know, it took, I had to work against a lot of different factors, my own traumatic history with the church, culture, blah, 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 to be here. This is something I need. This is the only place I can get this thing. So I'm, 
I'm excited. I mean, in terms of my work, this is the recent past, but at Gilead, we had a, for Easter, we had a burlesque church service. So we were in a theater and we had actual burlesque performers and my my co-pastor preached and he like stripped during the sermon. <laughs> and the first sentence of the sermon was Easter has always been a strip tease. And it was such an incredible and theologically grounded sermon and service and and it was wild and and I felt like I I really don't know that this exists like this other other places. And I think it's I I think it's a necessary translation of the gospel. And the burlesque was great. The dancers were great. The sermon was great. The music was great. But then this whole audience, half of which we'd never met before, turned and faced the communion table. And we did the greeting, God be with you, and also with you. And it was like, like this is, this is so church. Like, and, mm. and this sense that it's, that it's a necessary expression. And so if, if church could get... I know that not everyone needs a weirder expression of church, but I, one thing that's exciting is the possibility that people would stop giving a about the stuff that they don't need to worry about anymore. Mm. Like there are people, there are people who I don't. Need, I'm not even identifying what that, what that, what the stuff is that they need to stop paying attention to because I don't care. But that that we're sort of bound up in this fealty to shit that nobody cares. Like. I don't know. I, yeah. I think that there's like a, I the, hope the, that there's the a shedding. percent of the population who don't go to church don't care about, but yet there's a deep need for that gathering, for touching on holy ground, for connecting uh, spiritually together. For the role of God. This year, more than any year, I've had strangers reach out to me because they had crises going on in their lives that they didn't expect in one way or another. Like they didn't think they're sort of moral landscape was one that would create, would like mean this was even a crisis or whatever. People reaching out to me because they didn't know who else to turn to. I'm like, all I know is progressive clergy. The place is lousy with them. But because they didn't know anybody else who they could talk to about like some kind of moral, ethical, personal dilemma, and they wanted to talk about it with somebody who would talk to them about God. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, literally everyone I know would have this conversation with you, but you Googled and you're like, you're the only person I could find. And it just feels like it is so, I feel like I'm blushing, but but I really don't think that has anything to do with me. I think it has to do with, I don't know. I think it has to do with something much bigger and that I'm Googleable. I don't know. I don't know. But it, but that their people are missing something yeah. that... that that is the gospel, mm-hmm. w- without suggesting that they all need to convert or anything. But like that, that we can be more, should be more evangelical in letting people know. I don't know I'm on like three different soapboxes at once. I'm teetering. I'm teetering. Yeah. Well, there's this sense of this um, busting the doors of the church wide open to being the church in community, the the priest in community. You know, that priestly function of where are where are the priests? Where are the shamans? You know, people need people need that. We need that. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of churches are just trying to eke out an existence within the doors of the church doing what they've always done and don't realize that the world is their parish. And there are hurting people out there that need to hear the redemptive truth that they are beloved and worthy. That's right. Yeah, now I'm getting on my soapbox. Okay. So <laughs> I'm with you. I'm here for you. <laughs> 
What advice do you have for others who are feeling called to creative, out-of-the-box expressions of holy mischief? I pass on two pieces of wisdom to anybody doing anything. They both came to me. One is that Zach, who was the pastor at Simple Church outside of Boston, it was a United mm-hmm. Methodist church that sold, made and sold bread. Before we even gathered as a congregation, Zach looked at our website. We, he and I were on the phone together, and he said, I'm, I'm pumping my fist in the air. This is fantastic. He said, can I, can I offer you some advice? And I was, like, nervous. I was like, I, I mean, I guess so. And he <laughs> said, people are going to tell you that you're too boutique, that you're too specific. And he said, just ignore them. Do the thing. Do the specific thing that you're called to, That because that's your ministry. And, and as we thought more and more about this sort of translation, translation of the gospel, that it's, that it's the specificity of expression. And one of the sort of unofficial taglines, I don't know why it's unofficial anymore, but one of the unofficial taglines at Gilead is, we're not for everyone, but we might be for you. Mm. It, it's demonstrably true. I can see it on people's faces. People come in after the same service, be like, what is, what? what is this? How long have you guys been here? And at the same service, someone will be like, so what, what do you guys, what is this? I'm like, okay. doesn't seem like we're speaking your language, which is fine. But it's to, to go, to go ahead and be specific, be as specific Mm -hmm. as you can, because, and then find, and then I think the thing that worked about the social media campaign that we did, probably not replicable now, but is trying to figure out like, who are, who are our people? Who are the people like, we're not for everyone, but we might be for you. Who are those people? And then what's the what's the language? What's the expression that catches their eye, their ear, that lets them know it's safe to come here and check us out, all of that stuff. So be specific and then find those other specific people. And Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes says she's so tired of like churches for everyone. We're a church for everyone. She's like, you're not, you're not. The other piece of advice was in that first, that first year when things were just so overwhelming, I mean, they're overwhelming now, but in a very different way. A friend who's a nonprofit guy here in Chicago, J.C. Avalotis, he's a storyteller and a friend. And he also had advice, and I think maybe he got it from somebody else. But he said that in his experience, he said two things are going to happen. One, you're going to get better at some stuff. Mm. Like, I don't know how to how to run a new church. He said the other thing is that you're going to become you'll develop a higher tolerance for being bad at things. <laughs> <laughs> he said and both things are going to happen. And and it'll happen again and again. Like I I can't remember if he said this but I've experienced it where it happens sort of cyclically where I'm at a new place in the work and I'm I'm not a beginner anymore but but I am learning like a new a new phase. Mm-hmm. It's a good word for me right now. I'm, you know, nine days into my co-pastor being on sabbatical, and I feel like I'm gonna, gonna drown. But you'll get better at stuff, and you'll get better at tolerating being bad. Mm. What great words of wisdom there! Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> okay, so I have one last thing. We've had a really robust conversation, and boy, next time I'm in Chicago, I'm, I, I want to come hang out with you. So yes, this is please great. Please do, please do. Can you give us a blessing as we leave this conversation today for those mischievous creatives out there in the world that feel this deep sense of yes, yes, the gospel needs to be shared in these beautiful new different ways? Yeah. 
Friends, your sense of that yes is so real and it's specific to you and it's specific to the people with whom you share a language. I hope that you have freedom to speak it. I hope that you have joy in the speaking. I hope that you have companions for the work. I hope you find ways to rest. Don't let anybody tell you you're too boutique. <laughs> You'll get better at it. You'll get better at being bad at it. I hope it brings you joy and that you can pay attention and take as many pictures and videos as you can along the way. Thank you, Rebecca. Blessings on you and the unfolding of, of the next phase of Gilead Chicago. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. Church is Changing Podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.